Well, good morning. Oh, it's good to be back with y'all. I, you know, it, it's hard to believe it was three years ago that uh, Derek was called as pastor of this church. And before then, I was the B-team interim pastor, which meant I preached on Sunday nights. And I enjoyed being here so much. It was always fun. First of all, it's a beautiful drive from Chattanooga to here. And it was always so much fun to come down and to be with y'all. I always enjoyed being in fellowship with y'all. I grew up in a town that's kind of like, well, I, I say I grew up in a town that's like Lafayette. I grew up out in the country near a town like Lafayette. And so it, uh, it's always good to kind of come back home. And I, I'm so glad that Chris Coates is here today. It's good to have Chris, Nancy, and their kids here. Chris and Nancy have been missionaries. Uh, they have served on church staff uh, all over Chattanooga. And uh, we're glad that you could take some time off today to be here with us, Chris, and appreciate you and thank the Lord for you. He's a good, not only is he a great minister, but he's a good friend, and I appreciate you. So it's kind of fun to work with you today. And thank you for being here with the B-Team Preacher. But uh, uh, it, it is good to be back with you. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 25. The book of Matthew 25, and we're going to look at uh, some, uh, some scripture here today that comes out of a, a set of passages where Jesus is preparing his followers for his second coming. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of ready for Jesus to come back, aren't you? You know, in the older I get and the crazier this world gets, I'm really ready for Jesus to come back. But how in the world can you prepare for Jesus to return? And he shares in this pa these passages that we're going to look at one set of these passages in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. See, you've already been to seminary. You already know a big word, the Olivet Discourse, which means... These are passages that he preached when he was on the Mount of Olives. And, and here he is, he's preparing his followers to understand what it means to prepare for Jesus' return. There are three separate parables that he teaches. First is the parable of the, uh, of the, the uh, young maidens who are waiting for the wedding party and half are prepared and half are not prepared. You know, and he's preparing, he says, be prepared. That's what he tells them in that parable. Then you come to the parable of the talents, and we're going to look at that today. And then his final parable is the parable of the sheep and the goats. How to be ready by taking care of the least of these. So we're going to look today in the middle parable, which is the parable of the talents. And some of you are going... Oh, are we going to have to hear another sermon about talents? Yes, you are. <laughs> you know, I don't know how many of you remember this. If you can remember that far back, some of you, if you're getting closer to my age, and some of you, it was just like yesterday, and some of it, you may be living through it now. How many of you remember your first job that you actually got paid to do? Anybody can remember that far back? You know, let me ask you something. Was it your dream job? <laughs> Only a nightmare job, usually, right? It was a job that, you, that your mother made you get because she wanted you to go to college. 
to let you know what real work was like, to let you know how hard life could be. You know how cruel our mothers and fathers can be. My first job was one that my mother did line up for me. It was uh, my mother worked with the state of Alabama Highway Department. She was a secretary. She was the queen of the IBM Selectric. And she knew how to type, and she knew that I needed a job. And so she worked it out where I got the worst job, the lowliest job in the state of Alabama Highway Department. I worked during the summer uh, between my, I guess it was my junior, no, my sophomore and junior year, just when I turned 16, she arranged where I worked for $1.67 an hour because that was minimum wage, cutting right-of-ways on I-65 with a swing blade. <laughs> now, some of you are going, what's a swing blade? Some of you who are younger, what's a swing blade? Let me tell you what a swing blade is real simple. It's a stick with a blade on the end of it. And you would swing the blade like this. You know, it was one of those things that you just can't help but automatically break out with swing low. <laughs> you know, it was, it was one of those kind of things. And my job was to go along the right-of-ways of Alabama with a gang of other teenagers and cut around the guardrails, go down into the swamps that, uh, that go underneath the interstate by the bridges and cut out all the growth, kill the snakes, you know, run across all sorts of horrible things when you're down there. It, that was my job. Seven o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon. That's what we did all summer long, all in the noble quest of making sure I wanted to go to college. And so we did. I remember the first day I was there. Now, you know, you have to understand, I'm well connected with the state of Alabama. My mother is the secretary there at the office. So she, she gets me on a day early. So I'm there before any of the other kids. And we're riding in a dump truck that's been modified to carry convicts and teenagers. <laughs> and so we are, we're riding in there. And this is before OSHA, this is anything. There are just wooden benches that some of the guys have made and they're lining the back of this dump truck that we have to climb over and get into. And there's no seat belts, there's no safety devices. We're back there like a bunch of marbles in a shoebox, back and forth, back and forth. But the first day I'm there, I get to ride in the front. And I get to experience firsthand the man who will lead us. is a man whose name was Mr. Kilpatrick. And Mr. Kilpatrick was a nice guy. But Mr. Kilpatrick was an interesting fellow because he had lost his left arm in a sugarcane mill accident when he was a mere boy. He had lost half of it. Here he is driving a, a dump truck load, manual transmission, full of teenage boys with one hand and he has to shift gears. Now that's an interesting thing, just normally. But Mr. Kilpatrick had a real problem. He smoked cigarettes. 
Now it gets worse because I can just know what you're thinking. Well, he just smoked cigarettes. He, it's terrible. No, let me tell you, he didn't just smoke cigarettes. He was one of those kind of guys like your granddaddy. He rolled his own cigarettes. And he rolled his own cigarettes when he wanted to roll his own cigarettes. He didn't think of anybody's safety. He only thought of his own smoking habit. And so we're going along about 55 miles an hour. I'm sitting in the front seat. I watch Mr. Kilpatrick put that nub of his arm there in the, in the steering wheel. He takes his other arm. He pulls out a piece of paper. He takes out Prince Albert in a can. Now, if you don't know what that is, ask your parents. It's tobacco. And he would put that piece of paper between his arm, right here in the cuff of his arm, and he would pour the tobacco in. They'd take it lick it, light it, and smoke. That's the kind of guy we worked with. Well, the first day I was there, now don't get me wrong, Mr. Kilpatrick's a nice guy. He's just an old man. That's just what he did. That's how he's lived his life. And the first day he drops me off, he says, Dennis, this is your first day here. I got to go down to the rest area. I'm going to drop you off here. And here is a high bank. I want you to take your swing blade and I want you to cut the brush off of that bank. Now, folks, let me tell you, it's as high as the ceiling of, that, of this church. It's a steep bank. You see them on the interstate, you don't think anything about it. Until you stand on the side of the interstate, you look up and you realize, I've got a job to cut that. Now, I don't think Mr. Kilpatrick really expected me to cut the whole thing. I just didn't think that. Why would he do that? That's a lot of work to do. And after all, I'm a teenager. But he drops me off, and I think to myself, you know, this is really tempting. And, and only for those of you who have broken down on the interstate or you've actually done something like I did, which was work on the interstate, you don't realize the temptation there. Because this is on the side of a overpass. There's a bridge that goes across. I could cut and work, and it is hot, and it is humid and it is nasty out there and I could cut all this brush or I could climb up underneath the bridge because high underneath the bridge is a shelf and on that shelf it's as cool as a cave and you could sit up there and sleep you could rest you could do whatever you want but I think to myself my mother my mother is back typing away. I know at 4 o'clock when we pull in, she's going to come out. And she's going to find Mr. Kilpatrick. And she's going to say to him, how did Dennis do today? <laughs> and there's one thing I didn't want him to say. I didn't want him to say, you know, Christine... He just slept under the bridge most of the time I was gone. So therefore, I worked. And I worked for hours. It seemed like he was never coming back. But finally, I reached the peak of it. I had cut that whole side of the bank with a swing blade, not stopping, not falling to temptation and crawling under the shade. I worked because I knew at 4 o'clock, I wanted to be found faithful. Now, I'll tell you that story because it, it kind of ties into what we're looking at today. Hopefully, you brought your Bible this morning. I want you, and I've already told you, turn to Matthew 25. Let's look at this parable. 
Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. For it is just like a man who is about to go on a journey. And he calls his own servants, and he entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. And then he went on a journey. Well, immediately the man who had received five talents went and put them to work, and he earned five more. And in the same way, the man who had earned two with two earned two more. But, but the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Now let's just break this down. Let's begin in verse 14 by looking at this word it, for it. Now some of your translations would say for the kingdom of God because that's exactly what it is. For the kingdom of God is like a man about to go on a journey. Now who is this man? Well, this man is Jesus. Jesus is about to be taken up. When he tells this parable, he is, he is on his way to die on the cross, to be resurrected, and to be ascended into heaven with his heavenly Father. So he says this, he paints this picture through this story with them that he is a man about to go on a journey. And he calls his own servants and entrust his possessions to them. Now, who are his servants? Followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're his servant. Now, we live in a country where we're free. We don't like to think of ourselves as servants of anybody, but we are servants of Jesus. Let me tell you something. We're going to be servants of, any, of something, aren't we? We think we're free, but before we became Christians, we were servants of sin. We were slaves to Satan. We served him, whether we knew it or not. We thought we were free, but we were deluded. But when we accepted Christ as our Savior and Lord, he set us free from the bonds of sin, set us free as a child of his. And he paints a picture here that we're here to serve him and prepare for him to come back. And so he prepares his servants and he gives them possessions. Look what he gives them. To one he gave five talents, another two talents, and another one talent. Now we look at that, and you've heard sermons on this all your life. You've studied this in Sunday school. And we all know that these talents are something of great value. Now when Jesus told this parable, his folks, his listeners were under no illusion that what he was telling them was just a picture or, or anything like that. To them, a talent had a specific meaning. It meant a large amount of money, a large amount of money, more than most of them could ever imagine. You think about it, the average salary of that day was a denarius a day. It was a working man's wage. It was enough to subsist on a day. A denarius a day would buy you some food to eat and maybe a place to rest your head. There was no retirement, no savings, nothing. It was just a subsistence wage. But a talent was more money than most of these people would ever, ever, ever make. 
A talent was millions of dollars in our minds. And in fact, we could just say it was about a million dollars. Now, you can imagine if you live, if you work for a dollar 67 an hour, and here you are, someone is going to say to you, I'm, gonna get, I'm leaving and I'm giving you $5 million. What are you going to do with it? That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty exciting. But we also know this, that when Jesus tells this parable, he's not just talking about money. He's really talking about the value that comes from walking with Christ. Do you realize that when you become a Christian that you are, you are given great talents and abilities, spiritual gifts, and you've been given great responsibilities that you're to carry out for his kingdom work? And that's what Jesus is painting here. He's telling us as Christians that we are called to serve him. And he equips us and he provides for us those those, uh, those gifts and abilities, those attributes, uh, those qualities that are needed to carry out the task. He doesn't just say, go and do something. He tells us to do it. And here are the tools to use to do it. And he gives us more than we ever could imagine, more than we deserve, and we are given more riches and talents and abilities. After all, we went from being a slave to Satan to a child of the king. And so Jesus paints this picture, he says to one man, he gives five talents. And we're told here that the man immediately takes those five talents and uses them and makes them ten talents. Then the second man, we're told, the second servant, he gives one talent or two talents, and that man makes four talents out of them. Man, they immediately begin to work with what God has for them, and they carry out the task that God has for them in their lives. They are faithful servants and godly servants with what God entrusts to them. And then there's one other man, and this man is given one talent. Now, remember, Jesus says, each according to his own abilities. Now, that doesn't mean that this man was less or the others were better. It just means they have more abilities and talents. Yeah, you think about it here. You know, I think about Chris. Chris is very talented. He can lead all of these things, these, the, this praise team and the instrumentalist. He knows what he's doing up there. He's multi-talented. He's a five-talent kind of guy. You look at me, I'm a one-talent kind of guy. I'm just a preacher, you know. But... And, and look at some of the others. We look at people and we say, look at all those talents. But those, if God gives you more, guess what he does? He expects more. And he wants to use you to use more. But no matter what you have, he expects you to use it. Because this last guy, we see he's given one talent. Now, what does he do? Does he invest that one talent and make two talents? Does he use the best of his ability? No. Well, this bum, what does he do? He goes to his backyard and underneath the flower pot, he digs a hole and puts in that pile of gold that the master has given him. Just does nothing with it. Just kind of throws it out there. Hides it under the bed, puts it in the mattress, whatever you want to call it. That's what he does with it. We imagine he digs a hole and puts it in the ground where nothing can be done with it. It's safe, but it's not being used for anything. Now, years go by, we're told. And you know what? Can't we all relate? Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus left. We keep hearing sermons 
we keep reading the scripture that he's coming back we look at the the terrible shape the world's in we see sinfulness and disaster and we see crime and we see all these things and we say jesus are you coming back and the church goes on and generation after generation we continue on and we serve and we forget and lose sight of the fact that there's going to come one day when the master comes back and that's exactly what these guys are thinking years go by and that first servant who had had got those five talents he takes those five talents and he uses them but when is the master coming back the second servant the same thing the third servant well he just goes on with his life he really doesn't even think about it he really doesn't have a relationship with the master doesn't care about the master doesn't really love the master but he goes on with his life and life continues on i see this in churches all the time we have forgotten the fact that we've got to be ready we've got to be ur urgent in our ministry in our service because one day what happens to these servants is exactly as what's going to happen to us because one night it was dark late at night and there's a knock on the door of the first second and third servant the knock the master has returned what i didn't know he was returning and in joy great joy we're told the servant comes back look at this look what happens we're told in verse 19 after a long time a long time the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them oh i mean you, you just like picture this that knock on the door the gathering of all those talents all these years he was prepared every night for the coming of the master he spent time reading the master's words knowing the master was coming back telling others about the master serving his community because of the master training young men discipling young men pouring his life into them and then one night there's a knock on the door the master's returned and he couldn't wait to show him what he's done he brings those treasures he brings the lives that were changed he brings the young men that he had discipled he brings the families that were changed he brings he brings the communities that were impacted by the sharing of the word and he brings them all from that humble beginning of just a small handful of treasures he's doubled it and he comes before the master and look what happens the man who had received the five talents approached and he presented five more talents and he said master you gave me five talents look i've earned five more talents and his master said to him well done my good and faithful servant you were faithful over a few things i'm going to put you in charge of many things you come and you share your master's joy now the second servant the one who had only been given two talents but who used them diligently and wisely lives are changed missions are missionaries are supported work is done a great servant leader he's been faithful to the task that his lord had for him he also comes in and he lays before him the challenges and the transformed lives and the wonderful work that was done to promote the kingdom of god and his master says the same thing look 
Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I want to give, put you in charge of many things. You go and you share your master's joy. Now, before we move on from that, let's talk a little bit about what the master says to his servants because this is something we desperately need to hear as a church. This is something we need to be reminded about. Now, the first thing that we're told here is when we face our Lord and Savior, Jesus points out these things are going to be said. Number one, if you've been faithful to the task that God has for you, and you have been fruitful, and you have served the Lord, and, and, and you have been faithful to the task, he'll tell you, first of all, you, you imagine this. Here this servant, both of these servants, have knelt before their master. They're not worthy to even look upon him. Let me tell you, when we stand before the Lord, it's going to be like that. We cannot, we will not be able to look upon his glory, his beauty, his power. And we bow before him humbly, and he picks us up by the arm and lifts us up. And he looks at us and he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Can you imagine how those two servants must have felt when their master, who they sought to serve all those years, they've been faithful to him. And he looks at him and says, well done. Well done. Because there are some of you sitting out here today and you've gotten discouraged. You've gotten tired. It's weary. It's, it's labor. There's a lot of toil to serving. And you get discouraged and you watch the world go on and you watch the world turn away from Christ and you hear all these people who are rejecting the Lord and you've been faithful over the years and you've served him and you've been getting some victory after victory, but you just want to quit. You get tired and wonder, you wonder, Lord, when will this weariness end? Well, remember this. He's going to look you in the eye one day and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. You've stayed with the task. You've finished the work. You've done it. And then he's going to look at you with this and he's going to say, you know what? You've done a good job with this small job. I'm going to give you a bigger job. I'm going to give you a task you can't even imagine. I'm going to give you an opportunity to serve. I want to tell you, when we stand before the Lord and we, we are staring at him eye to eye and he has returned, or we have passed on and we are in heaven with him, I will tell you, we need to understand our work does not stop here. Have you ever heard someone say, and you may have thought it yourself, what in the world are we going to do in heaven? Because if you base your theology on cartoons and things, you'll think we'll be wearing hospital gowns and playing harps on clouds. That's a horrible thought altogether. That's not going to happen. When we get to heaven, guess what? We're going to face challenges and great challenges ahead of us, and we're going to serve the Lord in even more faithful ways. Why? Because we've been faithful with the things here in this short time that we've been on earth. You know, we think to ourselves, well, what do you mean short time? Folks, we're just in kindergarten. I don't care how old you are, you get no, you haven't even made it out of preschool yet. Real challenges go to heaven. But the wonderful thing about that is, you know how encumbered we are with sin? 
Do you know, the, do you know how, how bad, bad we have been pulled back and all that? When we get to heaven, we're going to have the strength that we used to have. In fact, more strength than we ever had. And we're not going to be encumbered with sin. And we're going to be able to serve the Lord faithfully and truthfully without all the things that drag us down. He's going to look at us and say, just wait for the challenges that are ahead. Folks, when we get, when we stand before the Lord, the Lord made us to work. And when we stand before him, we've got other challenges ahead of us. And then finally, we're told here, look at these words. You just have to look. He said, he said, share your master's joy. You know what he's really saying to him? Come to fellowship. You know, all your life you've read about Jesus. All your life you've read about his love and his care. All your life you would say, I'd love to meet him. Here he's saying, come, let's just sit down and talk. I've watched you grow I've seen what you've done. I want you to spend time with me. I'm excited that you're here. Can you imagine sitting down with someone that you just think the world of and them giving you time? I remember, you know, there's, remember at Sanford University, uh, when we lived down close to there at my last pastorate, Chuck Colson came to Sanford and spoke at Beeson. Now, I will tell you, I don't, I don't care a lot for Christian celebrities, for the most part, uh, but I like Chuck Colson. I like reading his books. I like him as a man. I, I liked him. He's passed away. But uh, all of that, but Chuck Colson was at Beeson Divinity School. He's the only guy I ever said to my wife, I want a picture taken with Chuck Colson. And I did. I've got that picture. Why? And you know what Chuck Colson was like? He was the nicest guy in the world nicest guy in the world if chuck colson's that nice you just think what's it going to be like with jesus now that's wonderful isn't it we've got something to look forward to as believers and i wish i could cut it off here i mean i really do i wish i didn't have to preach the rest of this because it's not pleasant but let's look at the rest of this because we forget about the other guy you remember you remember that guy that guy who took what God had given him and did nothing with it? The guy that buried it in his backyard? The others are taking the talents and abilities and transforming lives through the power of the gospel? And this man takes the greatest gift that he could ever be given, the most magnificent gift that could not be bought, and he wastes his life. You know, what's scary to me, folks, and I'll be honest with you, what is really scary to me is I see so many of our churches and so many of our believers doing exactly the same thing. I see so many of our churches wasting the opportunities and abilities. I see our believers, those who have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus who paid the ultimate price, and we profess that we are followers of his and do nothing and do nothing now how do you think jesus is going to respond to that third fellow and how do you think he's going to respond to people who profess to be believers but do nothing with their life 
You know, we've been so desensitized to all this. We kind of think that Jesus is probably going to teach us like, uh, like a little league baseball coach does. Give him a participation trophy, you know? Let him just go on. Oh, I'm sure, sh- you know, well, let's look at it and see how Jesus responds. Look at verse 24. The man who had received one talent also approached him and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man. You're reaping where you haven't sown and gathered where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you take what is yours. Now, you remember how those first two servants came in? They came in and they bowed before their master. They were glad to see their master. They celebrated to see their master. Here we find this man. He's standing back. Here before him are the first two. They're bowing before him, and he's back there just glaring. He's just looking at Jesus. He's looking at him with suspicion. These other two have a relationship with him. Honestly, this guy doesn't. Look how he describes Jesus. Now, these other two didn't describe Jesus this way. What did he say? He said, uh, Master, you, uh, you're a harsh man. This is Jesus. He's a harsh man. You reap where you have not sowed. You gathered where you haven't scattered seed. And so I'm scared of you, and I hid my treasure in the ground. Folks, what does that tell you about this guy? First of all, he's not describing the same Jesus those other two are describing. It's almost like he doesn't even know him. <gasps> well, maybe that's what it is. He doesn't even know Jesus. He has no relationship with him. All he knows is he, Jesus gave him this vast treasure and he's done nothing with it. Now, how does Jesus respond? Well, kind of like what I just said a few minutes ago. I, you know, some of us are saying, well, you know, if this was going on today, most of us would have said, well, maybe you're right, I'm not perfect. Maybe I, I've let you down. That's not what Jesus says. And in fact, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter because you know what? Jesus knows. He knows this man. He knows his heart. He knows the abilities and talents he's been given. How does Jesus respond to what he says? And his master replied to him, You evil, you lazy servant. Oh, if you knew where I reap, where I haven't sown, and gathered where I haven't scattered. Well, then you should have at least deposited my money with the bankers, and I could have at least received my buddy back with interest when I had returned. Jesus is saying, listen, if that's the way you feel about it, why didn't you at least put it in the passbook savings account at the bank where I could make zero, zero point zero percent interest? I mean, that's pretty much what Jesus said. You didn't even do anything with what I've given you. Folks, let me ask you this today. What would you do with this man? Why is he like he is? You see, this man, he he may cloak it with spirituality and self-righteousness, but the whole problem with this man is he's lazy, he's a slothful man, he has wasted his life, and now he's standing before God, and there's going to be judgment. 
What do we do with this guy? What does Jesus do with this guy? Where do we go from here? See, this is a danger for all of us. We live in a very affluent society. We've been Christians for many generations, many of us. We have grown up in a Christian culture. We have taken for granted all of these things, and we've forgotten the urgency of the message. We've forgotten what God has called us to do. We've forgotten about discipleship and evangelism. We think we hire our own staff to do that. When in reality, every one of us have a responsibility. We've all been given talents and abilities. We need to use those. I will tell you, sitting in a pew is not a spiritual gift. Complaining about the preacher over lunch is not a spiritual gift. None of those things. We're here to see lives changed. We're here to turn the whole world upside down. We're here to change with the power of the gospel. We are called to do that. It's not just staff. It's not just super Christians. It's all who are believers are called to serve. Some have more abilities and talents than others. You know, I've had to remind a church. I, I served a, a church one time that uh, was fairly, they were well off and Many of them had the abilities and talents to go and to do things that a lot of other people did. And they became very, it became, I called it the cruise ship to heaven. There's a danger of thinking we're on a cruise ship to heaven. We're not. Now, a cruise ship is a very expensive ship. But I'll tell you, I'd much rather be on a battleship than a cruise ship. You know why? Because if you're on a battleship, you're working. You know, I, I pastored in Norfolk, Virginia for about 10 years. And if you don't know this, Norfolk, Virginia is the world's largest Navy base. And my next door neighbor was the chief of the boat. In fact, he was over all the attack submarines, nuclear attack submarines on the East Coast. He was a really neat guy. And I, my roommate from college came in with his kids, and my next door neighbor arranged for us to go on the Oklahoma City, which is an attack sub. How many of you have ever been on an attack sub? I'm not talking about something down in Mobile, that little, little sub down there, World War II sub. I'm talking one of our new modern subs. Folks, this thing is three stories high. This thing is an amazing piece of machinery, billions of dollars. And every man and woman on there, back then it was just a man, every person on there has a job to do. And it's not about comfort. I will tell you, the chief of the boat did not go and pull down the covers and put mints on the pillows of the enlisted men. <laughs> not at all. When you go into an attack sub, when they leave, they pile up groceries for the next six months on the floor of the walkway. You're walking on your food for the next six months. No one has their own bunk. You sleep. When you wake up, another person jumps in your bunk and goes to sleep. The only person that has any sense of privacy is the captain, and his, his stateroom is about like this table right here. It's not big at all. Why? Because the ship is made to serve and to protect. It's there for a purpose, and they don't deter for the purpose at all. And you know, we as a church body, I believe, I'm not just talking about Lafayette First Baptist, I'm talking about all churches in America, we've been complacent, and I do believe we've forgotten 
while we're serving. We have a message to share. That the only message, the only message that can transform the world, the only message that can change people's lives is the message of Jesus Christ. That's why the world does not want to hear it. That's why secularists attack. That is why you hear time after time, we don't want you to share that gospel with us. Why? Because it's the only thing that will change it. Folks, you look at what Jesus says here. Look what he tells this man. What's the end result of a wasted life as a believer? You take that talent from him and you give it to one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have what even he has will be taken away from him. And you throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let me ask you where you are today. When you read the end of that and you think about this, what are you doing with the talents and abilities that God has given you as a believer? You have to go back and ask yourself, first of all, why would you waste your life? Why would you waste what God has given you? And you have to say, where am I in my walk with the Lord? Let me ask you this today. How many of you, and, it, and only you and the Lord know this, where are you with your walk with the Lord? You know, I believe in once saved, always saved. I really do. I think if you have been radically transformed by the gospel of Christ, I believe you are a believer. But sometimes I believe that, that we have to examine our walk with God and have to say, have I truly surrendered my heart, my life, my soul, my all to him? Have I truly made him the master of the Lord, the boss of everything that I am? Have I truly said I'll serve him? Or have we grown up in a culture where it was expected and accepted and you come and you be a part and it was good for business, and it was good for your family, and I, you don't believe all that stuff, and you're going to play a game all the way through. But what happens at the end? Now, there may be some of you who are very discouraged and depressed right now. There may be some of you who have walked the walk. You have fought the battles, and you're tired, and you want to give up. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. Let me tell you, don't give up. There may be some of you here today, you're ready for them to come back, but you know there are others who are not. Don't give up on them. We've got a time of grace where we can share the gospel. Don't give up. But whatever you do, be ready for him to come. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If God is dealing with your heart, won't you respond to him? There may be some of you here today, you just need to have a I guess the best way to put it is I come to Jesus meeting with him. You need to get things right with God. You need to get your salvation nailed down. You need to get your walk with him nailed down. You need to get serious about him. There may be others of you here today, you're discouraged. You need to, you need to come before the Lord and say, Father, I'm ready for you to return, but give me the strength to make it to the end. Let me finish the race well. And there may be other decisions that others need to make here and you need to make here. Whatever it is, don't leave here without dealing with it. I'll be down front. Bruce is going to be down front. 
Chris is going to lead us in the song, but before we do that, let's bow, let's bow for prayer. Father, you know every one of us here. I mean, you know us because you made us. And you know the struggles that we go through and the depression and the discouragement that we deal with. But you also know every one of us here. And Lord, there may be some here today that don't know you as Savior and Lord that they would come to you and make you the master, the Lord, the boss of their life. I pray, Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, give us the courage to make the right decision for you. If there are some who are discouraged, that they'd fall back in your arms. If there's some who are convicted, that they would make a decision for you, give you, make you the master, the Lord of their life. Whatever decision we need to make, give us the courage to make it. I pray for this church. I pray for the staff as they're awake. Lord, I pray that the, the greatest days of this church are ahead, and when you come back, they can rise up and praise you as Lord and Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand with me? If God is dealing with your heart and you need to respond, won't you do so today? Bruce will be here. I'm here. You may need to come and get things right with the Lord. Do so today.